At 78, Grandpa just retired from being a physician. I finally got rid of them all, but I had spent 50 years collecting these things. And I developed this huge file of articles. I'm glad now I don't feel like I have to do it. <laughs> I'm just able to sit around and bother the family and be a bum. Be a bum. I'm being... No, that's not being a bum. Well, hello, beautiful. Tell us who you are. Um, I'm Lauren's grandmother. I just came, walked in and I heard this. I don't agree that everyone has to push themselves that hard. You know, I don't, I don't believe everyone has to push themselves that hard to be a good person. And I know you're thinking of medicine. All doctors, they can have a life other than that and still be good people. Every morning is a blessing, you know? Well, that's the way I look at it. <laughs> <laughs> so you're retired now, Gramps. What are you going to do with all of your extra time? We um, have a great delight in being... with the family, that brings great joy. Hey, you bring us more joy than you'll ever know. You and Grandma. My wife, 55 years. I don't know what I'd do without her. <laughs> Today is her 80th birthday. She doesn't look like 80, she doesn't act like 80, she doesn't think like 80, but she's 80. It's just a number. I mean, no, I, I just didn't know how I really got here, and I can't believe I'm 80 because I feel so good, and I, years ago, that sounded old, terribly old. And it's fun to talk to my friends because we'll talk about, oh, creams and lotions, and I told her I really have to start putting lotion on my hands and on my face, and she said, honey, if not now, when? <laughs> My grandparents mean a lot to me. And while I've been in college, I've noticed them getting older. I know they won't be here forever, and I'm scared of that. Grandma's right. I do want to become a doctor. I want to treat and help others. But I don't want to lose people, even though that's inevitable. How do doctors and people in medicine face loss every day? How do they cope with that? How does somebody cope with that? When you lose someone you love, I mean, it's just completely heartbreaking um, and sorrowful. So it's always hard. I'll just have this physical reaction when Somebody dies totally unexpectedly and no one in the family had a chance to even say goodbye. They're all hard. It's profoundly sad. Yeah, profound. That's a good word. A friend who said that she's like, oh, I go to a party, I tell them I'm a healthcare consultant. She was like, because that's kind of what I am, but, you know, it's like, it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, uh, I am a palliative care nurse practitioner. Like, oh, you must be a really special person. It's like, oh, I, don't, I don't know about that so much. It's probably true of most jobs that it's hard to, you know, it's hard to talk about with other people, but 
I have to believe that, oh yeah, I had four patients die today and I, you know, gave drugs which, which accelerated somebody's death. I have to believe it's a little bit harder to talk about with the average yeah. Joe than most jobs. Yeah. A lot of my friends, they often don't even want to talk about what I do. Culturally, it's really, it's taboo. Like, America is a death-denying culture. You just reminded me of how often people say to me when they find out that I work with hospice, oh, how can you do that work? It sounds so depressing. Somehow this work is so sad. Either that or people think you're an angel. Oh, you must be a saint to do it. The latter is certainly much more common than the former. But I'm not a saint. I'm Tori. I'm one of the doctors in the palliative medicine team. My name is Lynn, and I'm a licensed clinical social worker. My name is Joe, and I'm a hospice volunteer. My name is Heather, and I'm a geriatric nurse practitioner. My name is Vilma, and I'm uh, currently a vigil volunteer with Pathways Hospice. So I've got this huge pile of clothes I'm going to try on, uh, most of which, of course, don't fit. And there's a woman sitting in the middle, holding court, giving you a running commentary on whether they should buy that or not. It's kind of like, okay, I'm never gonna meet you again. Should I get this? Does it look good on me? Oh, honey, that makes your ass look awful. Don't do that one. Okay. So you're like, okay, I won't do that. Um, I do it. way too much retail therapy. You see some pretty horrible stuff. When I was a fellow and I had five family meetings and I made everybody cry. So I made 40 grown-ups cry in a day. That same week, 25 people I knew to some degree, even if only fleetingly, died. I live a pretty fluffy life when I'm not here. And I read a lot of very silly, very fluffy stuff that I know is a happy ending because otherwise it is too much. Well, when my daughter was three, she wanted to know what kind of doctor I was, and I told her I took the owies out of the boo-boos. The way I usually introduce myself to patients, though, is, because they've never heard of palliative medicine either, they look at me like I'm bonkers, is the same way a cardiologist is a heart doctor and an oncologist is a cancer doctor, I'm a quality of life doctor. I am Josh. I am actually a clinical assistant professor at Stanford. Uh, I work in the palliative medicine department. I help people who are really sick. I do uh, quality of life, that that's what I specialize in. And um, I help people live better. Hi, my name is Carol. I'm a social worker at Methodist Hospital. I work with people who are sick and I help them find the resources that could help them get better. For me, this is more of a calling than a job. You know, and my guess is probably for half of the people that do this, it's more of a calling than a job. Because it is very, it, it is very painful. I mean, you see, you deal with, you know, young people being diagnosed, old people being diagnosed and not having a support system or, you know, you're, you're living pretty much with death every day. There are cases that are really, really sad. There are patients who have a voice, but they're sick and they're vulnerable, so their voice is easy to ignore. And I would say the largest group of consults that we get are certainly around 
end of life. My name is David. I'm co-chair of the Ethics Committee of the Stanford Healthcare. The role of clinical ethicists, I would say, is to really resolve conflicts. We can sometimes be helpful in situations where there's differences of opinion, and we can sometimes be helpful in helping people think through difficult issues when decisions are hard. We live in a very youth-oriented culture. Nobody wants to face the fact that we're all going to die. When you're sitting in on really sad, horrible family meetings, the team believes that continued life-sustaining treatments don't really offer any benefit to the patient, but the family is not ready to discontinue treatment and, and let go. You know, if a patient has stopped eating and, uh, you know, they get frantic about it, they've got to eat, they've got to eat, they don't want to eat. They don't want to eat. This is nature taking its course. Don't force them to eat. It's sad. Their loved one is dying. They should be sad. It's a terrible, terrible thing, and it's, and it's horrible. The patient's got three kids, and they don't get along with each other, and they're having a fight about who the decision maker should be. When families are at odds with each other, that's what hurts. That's what's upsetting. That's what upsets me most. It doesn't happen very often, but when it does, I get very sad. In particular, I was dealing with a family, three daughters. The mother was dying. And they were struggling so much with withdrawing the feeding. She could hear her daughters going on at each other about who was going to speak at her mother's funeral. <laughs> and you could just tell the mother was wanting to say, you know, I'm still here, or whatever it was she might have wanted to say, and these two daughters were saying, no, this person should be, no, this person should be. Last week there was a case where, like, the one of the family members was actually threatening violence against another family member. And so when things get so bad and the relationships are completely dysfunctional, we're brought in much more in those kinds of situations now. And those are, those are much harder, much, much harder. I'm Colleen. I'm one of the advanced practice nurses at Stanford. As a palliative care team, we might come in and talk about horrible things that are happening if they had a change in their condition. Their cancer has metastasized to the point that they no longer would benefit from any interventions. I can't make you live longer. I wish I could. I can't. Sometimes it's ugly. It's not that they've given up. It's just that the disease is winning. The world does not always make sense. There's no trade-offs, right? Like, you just, you just don't know. This is just the way the world is. We don't understand why things happen to people and other things happen to other people. I'm not giving you anything you like. We're picking between the best of the bad options. kind of deciding, well, where do I want to die? But we still have other hopes for you. you. You can choose to still get up and get dressed when possible. You can still choose to interact in a loving manner with your family. We have hopes that you don't suffer. We have hopes that if you have like a bucket list, what can we on that bucket list help you achieve? It might not be that that's their hope. 
then you see someone all of a sudden lose their hope for anything. And that's really hard. One of the first vigil patients that I went out to see, this little person scrunched up in the bed, very frail, uh, in, almost in a fetal position. And I thought to myself, this looks like any time. Patient's granddaughter was a lovely young high school girl, and she turned to me and said, is it all right if I touch her? And I said, yes, of course you can touch her. So the granddaughter walked very gingerly up to the side of the bed and took her grandmother's hand. And she said, Nana, I love you, and bent down, gave the patient a kiss on the forehead. The patient died that night. You're present for people's most important, some of their most important moments, and sometimes those are really great, wonderful moments, and sometimes they're really, really hard moments. There is something around sort of hearing things that are sad or hard kind of over and over again, that it can be really a challenge for frontline providers over time. Um, I think that's one of the bigger challenges. It's sort of like, what do you do with all the stories? The stories, the stories are fantastic, what people have done, and the just, I don't know, they're just, they're just wonderful. When I know I've gone to say goodbye and had some kind of closure, like that helps with the healing. When you never get to have that, it's, you know, they, they had just been playing with them in the park the day before, never thinking that they needed to say goodbye. And then the person sort of slips away and they never have a chance to have any closure. Like those, I just got goosebumps thinking about when that happens. Those are the hardest goodbyes for me. It's, it's hard, it's, it's tearful. You know, because it depends on the day. You know, I might be having a good pondering this day or a pondering that makes me need to go to the gym and work out for 20 or 30 minutes to get rid of it, you know? I think that can certainly touch on my own feelings of mortality. When I see people who are my same age or a little bit older, or a little bit younger, who have children the same age or a spouse the same age, um, we talk a lot about um, like when you see people who are really struggling, like can't help but wonder like, well, I struggle too. Like I can talk a good talk, but like when it really comes down to it being my time, when I'm like, when I'm told what my diagnosis will be, when I'm really have a clear understanding of what my own dying process will look like, I'm not sure that I'll be so cool. I might really, you know, like people freak out. Like I might be one of those people. <laughs> I would hope that I, I can be as brave as I'm talking now when I'm healthy end and there's just minutes in some cases and it's like one minute they're here and then the next minute then life is over I'd say those first experiences they were pretty depressing and in a way, it's a lot easier to deal with when you actually have a job to do and you're actually spending your time really focusing on like all those millions of things um, than when you don't really know, know very much. 
my job is to make things better for people. Um, and that never, that never stops feeling like a really good thing. You know, when people ask us, what is, how can you do this work? Um, mostly it's most uplifting because you know that it doesn't take much to make a difference, a positive difference. There's definitely a sense of that you're just you're impacting people in subtle ways that really do have substantial effect on their overall life. If their life expectancy is three months and if you can make one month of those three months better, that's a third of their life. So you can do a little bit of changes and really affect a large portion of what that life is all about. People, when they're dying, feel like they've lost control of their life. And to be able to give them some control over what happens and how it happens is so important. Our whole job is about valuing the, the whole person. So I feel very, very lucky that built into my job is spending time with people and learning about them. But I think part of our training is to also to learn how to like, how do you use your, like, like we are our tool. Like we're not surgeons, like we don't do surgery or like do radiation. Like, like people have different tools, right? And our tool is really ourselves. It's like, that's kind of all part of the role of palliative care is to like, it's like therapeutic use of self. It's like you, it's what we, that's kind of like what we have to bring to the table. So it's like, how do we communicate? What are the words we choose? How do we carry our body? You know, it's like, if you stand with your arms like folded in front of you, it sends one message. If you have your hands at your sides or behind you, it sends a different message. It's like kind of awareness of like how you carry yourself and, and the things that you say. I remember one of my very first consults, I got called in, uh, so it's still obviously vivid enough that I can even remember this, but it was a patient who was in multi-organ systems failure and dying on the floor, but he didn't want to let go, and this uh, ex-wife who was caring for him and was his primary decision maker, whenever she left, he would tell the nurses that he wanted to stop, but whenever the family was there, he would say, no, I want to keep going, and they were really struggling. I just picked up on something and said, you know, I'm just going to go talk to the wife separately uh, a little bit and when I did that it's pretty clear that she thought he should stop but she wasn't saying that because she was trying to be brave for him and was scared for him and then when I talked to him he was trying to be strong for her and neither of them was talking with each other about what was really going on and then when we got done talking everything changed and so this family that had been seen as quote-unquote a bad family and people had been unhappy with them in all kinds of ways wound up having this terrific relationship after that and everything went pretty smoothly and uh it was just a very good experience i mean that was one of my first consults and i remember thinking okay yeah this is this can help um i mean i don't want to sugarcoat it like oh everyone is great all the time and nothing bad ever happens but but most of the time People are really amazing and resilient and impressive and funny and really appreciative of someone checking in with them and asking them how they're doing. It's a really interesting question to ask people. Um, you know, like when you think of the weeks and months ahead, the years ahead, or, or sort of however you're kind of that question, like what's really important to you? What brings, or like what brings you meaning and joy to your life? Um, and get fascinating answers out of people. I think it's a question that like we don't ask a lot, even though like we're such meaning-making machines. It's like I think it's not a everyday question. So you're like, what is really important to you? Often like, wow, huh? 
in the past I've come home and maybe not that same day, but I'll tell my children, hey, you know, if something does happen to your, your mom or me, whatever, you still better go to college. You still better, like, behave and listen to your dad and all those things. You know, I think everybody has a different answer to that question. I think a lot about it, you know, especially with having kids now. It's like, I'm going to be away from my family. Then, like, this is a good reason for me to be away from them. Um, I've met really, I've met so many people who have really moved me over the years. And I've carried... It's like, you know, it's it's such a learning opportunity, I think, to work with people who are nearing the end of their life or who have really serious illness. I'm humbled that I can walk with people at the end of their life. It made me think a lot about, like, you know, people I've seen, like, when tell me, like, what are their regrets? What are the things they're grateful for? What are the things they're proud of? Um, it's made me think a lot about my own life choices and how it is that I want to live, what are the memories that I want to have? What are the stories I'm going to want to carry away? Like, what is the legacy that I'll want to leave? Um, how do I want to spend my time on this planet, essentially? Like, it's be, <laughs> my work makes it very clear to me that you're guaranteed, you're guaranteed nothing. You're not guaranteed a long life. Um, that things could happen at, at any time. And that, like, that's, that's not like panicking or being negative. That's just, like, it's just reality. It's the most amazing thing really is, is to be such a part of life and then the end of life, you know, no life anymore. There's something, this is going to sound really weird, but liberating in a way when you know someone is going to be leaving this realm, I feel a sense of freedom in that space to just listen and be present. And I stop thinking about all the things that bug me. We talk in hospice about having a good death. And that's what we aim for, is a good death. And when you know that that's what's happened, it's very, very uplifting and satisfying. We see many people who like are really able to make make meaning out of what's happening, you know, and even if these aren't the choices that they wish they had, um, are still able to live sort of good and good and full lives to the best of their ability. I have met some very incredible folks in my years of doing hospice and palliative care that have taught me amazing things about acceptance, about dying with dignity. And, you know, those are invaluable lessons. I'm trying to make play a bigger part of my life um, for the sake of play. Like, you can't really care for people and do a really good job for the long term if you don't also, like, refill your own well. The themes of life really should be, like, work, rest, and play. Our time is limited. I don't know how much time I have. Anything could happen. So I should definitely watch this episode of Parks and Recreation right now because I don't know if I'm going to get to watch it tomorrow. <laughs> so when people say, like, well, all you have is today, it's like, oh, my God, like, they're actually, <laughs> they're actually right. Like, what am I supposed to do with that information? Like, do I just, like, you know, quit my job? Do I just go, like, you know, I'm going to 7-Eleven on the way home, man. I'm getting, like, the big gulp. Or, like, going to watch Netflix all night long. Do you go, you know, it's like, you know. 
I, it's, I always kind of feel like, what are you supposed to do with that information? I feel like that's kind of a tricky part. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't every day, I mean, even if you know that, you can't every day be thinking, you know, tomorrow I might get cancer and not not live to be 80. And so, you know, I really need to live today, you know, to the fullest. That's totally unsustainable. For me, I try, try to focus on things that are really important. Like trivial things I try to let go. I think all these stories and all these voices, um, I think a lot about like, what are my important relationships? What about my work life to look like? Like, it just makes you feel like, you, know, you can't walk around like feeling like every minute is precious. You know, like that's a little too much pressure because we all have to like go to the grocery store, you have to clean up ants off the kitchen floor, like you have to like get up with your kids at night, you have to like deal with the, like the car when it breaks down. It's like not every moment in life um, like brings joy. But there it has, but I think the stories and the people I've met have given me a lot of perspective on like, when it comes to the end of the day, what's like really important? How do you want to spend your time? And I think I'm really good about always saying I love you to people before we say goodbye and doing things like, you know, don't go to bed mad at each other. Always say I love you before you leave and um, don't wait to share things that you want people to know. Like so much about what is good in life happens day to day. And that if you can find a lot of pleasure and peace um, and contentment in your day to day, then like that's a really good life. That's a really, really good life. And I feel grateful to have had my patients who have helped to teach that to me now. And it's like, I feel like once that door gets opened, you can't go back. You can't go back to a place of not knowing. Hi, it's me again, the one with the grandparents. Your headphones, well, and this thing, you look like a reporter. Heather is totally right about opening a door and not being able to go back. I've opened this door, and in this moment, I know what I care about. In fact, so does Grandpa. We take great pride in making the garden look good. We got a poinsettia plant. It was dwindling, and with TLC... It's now taken root and it's grown to two or three times the size. Grandpa's stories are never old to me, and they never will be. Had our first dog there. I want to make my grandparents proud and work hard. But I want to keep perspective. I want to play for the sake of play. What kind of doctor do I want to be? The cheesy answer is always a good doctor. The real answer is hidden in the stories we just listened to. The amazing impacts that these professionals have on people's lives. The ways they feel touched by their patients. That's what I strive for. In this profession, of course there is fear, but there's also hope and courage and commonality. Inspiration of the human spirit, even in this unpredictable life. I always felt like you've got to spend the time with patients be a help to them, not just take this medicine and this is what your diagnosis was, but show that you really were interested and that you cared about them. And, and I did. 
My name is Lauren Joseph, and this story was made possible by the Braden Grant through Stanford Storytelling Project. I want to give a huge thank you to Will Rogers, my mentor, and Jake and the gang at SSP who guided me. Most importantly, I want to thank all of the people included in this podcast or not, who shared their experiences with me. Sarah, Tom, Tori, Joe, G&G, David, Josh, Lynn, Colleen, Thilma, Heather, and Carol. Thank you for giving the world the gift of you. And thank you for letting me see a bit of your world. I hope to make it as beautiful as you do.